three, two, one. Welcome to the Dave of the Dog Trainer podcast, episode one thirty seven. Today we're joining you on a, a gloomy Saturday morning, oh. which is abnormal. We usually do Thursdays. I was out of town Thursday, so here we are on a gloomy Saturday morning. Yeah, the fall has arrived. I think, it's dude, a, it's it's full fall here. Yeah, full fall. Yeah, it's the the leaves and the trees are beautiful. Oh my god, I was just up in Michigan and just the oh, colors yeah. everywhere. Yeah, leaf peeping everywhere. Yeah, you know we like to hate on Michigan here, but it's they beautiful. got some beautiful countryside. That's beautiful. for sure. Yeah, yeah. What's new? <sighs> Quite a bit, actually. But oh. <laughs> no, I was a quite a bit. Yeah. Um, shot some show photos for the I first time that. in a while. Yeah, they they came out really well. Not bad for a food photographer. Yeah, yeah. yeah I had to. Uh, Shoot a little video too for them because they got new in ears, uh, JH Audio. I JH, believe. yeah, which is pretty cool. They're a pretty big company. They have like eighty k uh, social media followers on their Instagram, which is pretty good for like a niche company. I feel so like you took pictures of the monitors for them. Yeah, to the in ear. Yeah, the in ear monitors. Nice. So they they were like. They're the kind where they um, they they pour the stuff into your yeah, ear, you yeah, know, get the right mold. Yeah, yeah, they mold it straight to your ear, and uh, that's what's up. And then, yeah, all their all the outsides were custom, so uh, some of them had like sparkles, and yeah, you know, the one had like their their logo like embedded in it and stuff. So I did a little product photo slash video stuff for them. I like so, it. Yeah, I think that'll be that'll be fun. To, post up there like a little something different than food you know yeah but other than that i went to tartine for their fall menu which mm. you guys need to get over to tartine tartine Bistro. Oh. oh they're it's so good yeah it's literally so good that's all i'm gonna say i don't want to i don't want to ruin it for you i'm a sucker for a fall menu yeah you so know, anytime you switch over to a fall menu you start yeah. adding some squash things yeah some pumpkin things oh yeah yeah uh-oh Jesus. <coughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was uh, that was my last week. How about you? Not much. Michigan. Saw yeah. a little concert. Came back down. It was Kate's birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. You know, did that. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna do our little Q and A episode we've been telling everybody. So I compiled six questions. We've been asked a decent amount of questions over the last week since I've been asking for them. Yeah. Shout out to people asked uh, the questions and um you know, anybody that wants to ask questions, keep sending them our way. And we'll keep compiling episodes like this. Yeah. And we'll try to burn through them uh, as much as we can. Generally, when I do these Q&A episodes, I try to get as, like, specific and detailed as possible with the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people do Q&A shows, and it's like, let's let's get, like, 40 questions, and they give these, like, 60-second answers to each yeah. one of them. You know, listen, I'm not the biggest believer that, like, Q&A stuff in this type of a format is like yeah. really, really that overly beneficial. Like it's going to dramatically change your life or, or anything like that. But uh, I do think nonetheless, the questions generally bring up good talking points to go over. And I think that there's definitely some useful information you could pull from them. Uh, but keep in mind, like to people that like to like go online and ask questions a lot, because we get that a lot, right? Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, like all those places, people are always asking like, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? Mm-hmm. What do I do about this? Yeah. Keep in mind, you're likely going to need to hire a trainer to some extent, right? That's not because it's impossible to do this stuff on your own, but in order for us to thoroughly answer your question, there's generally quite a bit of follow-up that goes into like, all right, well, you send this question, 
you know, I need to ask more specific details about this or this or this or whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, consider virtual consults are always nice. We got a, a mm-hmm. one that's going live on, actually, I think it might've been on the vlog that just went up yesterday. Mm-hmm. I did a virtual session with somebody who has a dog that's having some like inner house aggression issues towards like guests and stuff. They just had a baby and, uh, you'll kind of get a feel for like, all right, well, when, when a question does come through, how much back and forth information I need to get from the people to really get to the bottom of like the adjustments they're ultimately going to need to make. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, that makes sense. And <clears throat> Yeah, I like that you go in depth on everything because one of the the people that I really like, I mean, his it's obviously a little different, but Ramsey, mm. like you know, I mean, people call in, you know, talk, but it's literally shout out Dave Ramsey, yeah, Dave Ramsey, <laughs> shout, bless shout up, out. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, he sits there and takes twenty twenty minutes, twenty five minutes with these people and and yeah. try to answer their questions, which the same thing. It's like you know, you can talk to someone over the phone about financial stuff, but they really need to get like a planner and stuff if they're having yep. that problem. So it's true, but it's the same thing. Like just giving, giving that information does add to people. So yeah. I, I, I hate it when, yeah, people just kind of like burn through things and you don't really get a good context of, of an answer, I guess. Truth. So I like how you do it. All right. Well, let's start fucking rolling through it, Josh. Josh, you're going to be asking the questions. I'll be providing the answers. All right. Did you want to go in any uh, order with these? Whatever order you want. All right. Well, we're going to start with Peyton857. Peyton asks, there's a video where you're teaching walking behind to a corso where you're using positive punishment for establishing criteria. He crosses the line and gets marked and punished. At 55 in the video, he's discussing using a high-level correction on the leash walk. Is this after having used low-level for negative reinforcement to establish criteria, or is this also punishment to establish criteria? Good question. Okay, so the video in particular that they're referencing is, I think it's one of our most viewed videos on our YouTube page. And I think the video is called like how to teach your dog to walk behind you, right? So we'll address this in a couple of different ways, right? So generally speaking, we talk a lot about, you know, obviously you can't really teach something with punishment, right? Punishment is intended to decrease behavior. Reinforcement is intended to increase behavior. So hypothetically, in the sequence of teaching a command, we would want to work through the process of teaching the criteria first, whatever that criteria ultimately is. And then once we have the command taught and established, we would then punish for non-compliance of doing that command, right? Now, this is an interesting one because we could look at, you know, when I created that kind of drill utilizing the cracks in the sidewalk, and again, I recommend everybody take a look at that video um, to kind of get a little bit of a feel for what it is exactly we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way that I kind of created it was very, very similar to how people would train an electric fence, right? Mm-hmm. And we could argue, okay, so like when we're training a dog for an electric fence, what are we doing? Are we teaching something? 
or are we stopping something? Are we trying to increase a behavior or are we trying to decrease a behavior, right? Mm. Now, I would argue in the case of an electric fence, you are training to decrease a behavior because there's not really a specific criteria the dog needs to meet outside of don't pass this line. Yeah. It's not like we're expecting them <clears throat> to stay in this exact spot in this yard or this exact spot over here or, or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Now, you could hypothetically train it that way if you wanted to. I could you know, walk the dog past the perimeter continuous stem, bring them in, release the pressure. The problem is every time I do that, the pressure is going to be turning off in a different spot. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Right? Because the emphasis isn't on where in the yard they're staying. The emphasis is just on don't pass this boundary, mm -hmm. right? Which is why it's clearly outlined with the flags when you're training it, right? Yeah. So with that mentality, I look at the, the, the boundary of passing us as very similar. I don't, with my leash walking, care if the dog is in a heel position here or if they're six inches behind us, a foot behind us, a foot and a half behind us, mm. on my right side, on my left side, any of those types of things. There's no mm. criteria of it. So technically, using negative reinforcement in order to train something would be very unclear because the pressure turns off in a different spot every single time, right? Yeah. It's harder for them to grasp where is the off switch for this, right? Mm. But what we are trying to do is we are trying to stop one specific thing of the dog passing our boundary. Yeah. Right. So because of that, jumping right into implementing punishment for it could ultimately be more clear. Right. No mm -hmm. different than correcting for jumping. Adding in punishment for the jumping would be more clear than trying to use negative reinforcement to teach having four paws on the ground or whatever it may be. Yeah. Right. So that's the reason why we would ultimately use punishment in order to um, kind of teach that criteria as opposed to using negative reinforcement for it. Now, another thing I wanted to address in it is she mentioned like, you know, uh, you, you mentioned using a high level in order to, uh, you know, enforce that particular boundary in that video. Mm -hmm. And she asked, you know, does that mean that you've used a lower level with negative reinforcement prior to? And this is something I talked a lot about with Bradley when Bradley was just here, the shadow student, yeah. was this perception that we create sometimes of when we look at negative reinforcement and punishment as one will be low and one will be high. Whether you are using negative reinforcement or whether you are using positive punishment, the intensity of the stimulation is simply dictated on the dog's response to that stimulation, meaning high is going to be subjective to what the dog determines high to be at. Low is going to, same deal, be subjective to what the dog determines low to be at. But if we look at the function of positive punishment or negative reinforcement, in positive punishment, the aversive stimuli has to be to the dog high enough for them to want to avoid it. And in negative reinforcement, it has to be high enough in order for them to want to escape it, meaning turn the pressure off, mm -hmm. right? So for all of those types of things, technically, subjectively to the dog, the level will have to be quote unquote high. I think where we get into the conversation of high level versus low level is when we start debating from the human perspective what we dictate to be high or low. Like obviously, if I were to put an e-collar on myself and tap it at a 15, to me, for my perceptive, that would be pretty low. But there are a lot of dogs out there that that's to them perceived as a high level. Now, to me, something like 100 on the e-collar is considered, in my mind, pretty high. You know, obviously feeling that, that would feel pretty high in the intensity spectrum. Yeah. But on the same uh, 
other side of things, if I did that on a dog, we have plenty of dogs that we work with that 100 on the e-collar to them is perceived as pretty low still. Yeah. They're not as phased by it. It's not physically aversive enough for them to perceive it as something that's extremely high. So I really try to encourage people getting out of this state of mind of thinking like when I'm using negative reinforcement, I have to go to a lower level. And when I use positive punishment, I need to go to a higher level because in the end of the day with many, many dogs, the level needed to be aversive enough to want to avoid or escape is going to be very similar. And you may wind up at a similar level. And it's not so much about the intensity of the stimulation. It's about how the stimulation is being applied that Mm. makes it positive punishment or negative reinforcement. Mm. Does that make sense? Did I get too confusing with that? No, no, no. It it makes sense. You got any follow-up questions to that? Honestly, no. <laughs> like you, you explain that to a T. So I yeah, like I mean the 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 intensity of the stimulation thing throws yeah. people off so much sometimes yeah. because we get stuck in our human head mm-hmm. of what do I think is high and what do I think is low. Yeah, right. Um, it's funny. I think we talked about in the last podcast. I was doing a lesson with somebody and um, they were working at like a a sixty five or something like that. Right. And I told him, I was like, you got to increase the level. The dog literally doesn't give a shit about it here. Right. And he was like, well, I don't want to be like totally frying him with it. And I was like, but do you think he's perceiving what's happening as being totally fried by? He's not. Yeah. Right. So we've got to get out of our own head and we've got to look at what is the dog determining to be aversive in this moment. Yeah. And that is, that is the key with it, man. Like if you can get out of that state of mind and you could focus solely on the dog and what the dog's perception of things is, um, your training is going to be so much more efficient. It's going to be so much more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it has to be (laughs) enough that it takes their attention off whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And like, especially with like prey or prey drive, any of that. It's just different with every dog. It's funny. So we had a, uh, another dog that went home from a boarding train just last week and um, this woman's sister recently finished a board and train with her dog, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they're both from out of town. And uh, the one dog, the first one that went home, um, this dog was so sensitive to the e-collar that, like, I think he generally works under 15 for everything. Yeah. Yeah, there's sometimes it has to go a little bit higher, obviously. But for mm-hmm. the most part... A six or an eight is like more than enough. And this is on the micro educator, which is, I think, like one third intensity lower than on the mini educator. So it's very, really? very, very, very low. Wow. Right. Okay. And on the contrary, the sister has this big corso that literally works at like a hundred for a lot of things. Right. <laughs> and she was so surprised. And she was talking about it with her sister. She came back in for a follow up lesson. She's like, Yeah, I was talking to her. I was like, I was just so shocked, like how high <laughs> I did. And my sister's like, Oh my God, like my dog works at like a 15. And and again, in our mind, we're looking at it high low, but to the yeah. dog, we're looking at what is their response to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, fifteen's not going to do much to that, the corso. Yeah, like, yeah, it's just it's subjective to the to the individual's experience to it. Yeah, so exactly. So there's the answer to that first question. You got to focus on when you look at using negative reinforcement or positive punishment. So our two forms of aversives, right? Um, you've got to look at or two forms of physical aversives, I should say, uh, because negative punishment is technically an aversive. Um, it's more of a psychological aversive. Yeah. They ain't getting what they want. (laughs) Um, But you got to look at, are you trying to teach something? Meaning, are you trying to increase behavior or are you trying to decrease behavior? And that will dictate which one of those that you ultimately use and in what order. Hell yeah. 
So there's our first one. All right. Um, I think the follow-up question is from her also. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I was going to say, yeah. um, if you wanted to hit this one too. Let's do it. Okay. So Peyton also asks, um, question on repeating the command after giving the positive punishment marker. I've seen quite a few people say that repeating the command is an anti-pattern and teaches lazy listening. Instead, they suggest command and then mark and punish, repeat as necessary, unless there is obvious confusion, in which case you should probably still be in the reinforcement part of the training anyway. Uh, do you have a different take on this style of training? Mm. This is a good. This is another good question. So I remember when she left both these questions, I was like, "Damn, I'm, I'm <laughs> excited to get into these two a little yeah, bit because they good. they they force you to think outside the box a little bit." Okay, so yeah. let's look at markers, right? So either positive markers or negative markers, right? Mm -hmm. You have two types of markers that you can use, right? You have what we refer to as bridge markers, and you have what we refer to as terminal markers, right? Okay. So a bridge marker is something that you'd use in order to connect behaviors together, right? Now, generally speaking, bridge markers you would only use with like positive, right? So like positive reinforcement, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Or I should say with reinforcement in general um, because it's a continuation. Let's say I'm doing a sit, right? And I want to reinforce the sit command but I don't want to release the dog out of position. I could use a bridge marker, like my good marker, to mm -hmm. go and reinforce that position, which is going to increase the likelihood the dog wants to stay in that command, but I don't have to terminate the entire exercise, mm -hmm. right? They can continue staying in that sit, and I can continuously reinforce it, extending that position out, right? Gotcha. Or if I'm doing a sequence of behaviors, right? So we used to teach in competition dog training, sit down, stand. They would have to go through the sequence of performing those behaviors, yeah. right? I could reinforce each individual command without ending the exercise. So I could say, mm. sit, good, reward. Yeah. Stand, good, reward. Good. Down, good, reward. And I could work through that whole sequence, reinforcing every step without ever needing to break the dog from command yeah. or stop the exercise. Right? Terminal markers we use to end the exercise and to provide reinforcement or punishment. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's use it from a positive standpoint first. Let's say I'm working the dog from a distance, right? And I, mm -hmm. I tell them down. They down really far away from me, and I tell them yes. That marks and identifies that behavior they were doing, so the down from a distance. It allows them to actively get out of position and come to me to get that reward. And at that point, once they've gotten the reward, we're done with what we were just working on. There's no longer an expectation of you. It marks the end of the sequence of whatever it was that we were working on, okay. right? Yeah. The way that we train our no marker is we train it as a terminal marker, meaning you screwed it up, here's your correction for it, let's reset and try again, mm -hmm. right? Now, to the point of, I think she was saying, like it, it, it causes, can you read the, the last part of it again? Causes lazy listening, and you should still be in the reinforcement <clears throat> stages, whatever. Yeah, I've seen quite a few people say that repeating the command is an anti-pattern and teaches lazy listening. Instead, they suggest command and then mark and punish, repeat as necessary, unless there's obvious confusion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so the last part about the obvious, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. I want to sure. get to the, like, the repeating command as an anti-pattern mm -hmm. and lazy listening and things like that. Yeah. So let's look at using an aversive. Right. Okay. And let's say I punish for a behavior. Let's say whatever. I ask the dog to down. 
the dog didn't down and I tell them no and I give them a big correction for it because we're past teaching stages. You screwed up. Here's a big correction, (laughs) right? We have to be mindful that in the act of giving a big correction, there is going to be this minute of like, whoa, (laughs) what, whoa, what just happened? Yeah. Right? In that moment, the aversive, in addition to decreasing whatever it was that we just punished for, provides a moment of confusion in itself, Mm. right? Mm. What the heck just happened? I screwed it up, right? So by making your marker and your punishment sequence a terminal marker, it allows you to give the punishment. We're done now. You screwed it up. There's no expectation of you in this moment. Let's take a minute regather ourselves both for the dog's sake as well as the handler's sake Mm. and then follow through on giving whatever sort of information it is that we want the dog to do to restart the sequence Mm. right so that's the way we train it i genuinely feel like this idea that like we should just be correcting 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 and the dog should just figure out how to do it well if you start getting into those stages technically you are using negative reinforcement again yeah. Right. Because let's look at this. Right. Let's say that's my expectation. Right. I want the dog to do a downstay. Right. Okay. And the dog doesn't do the downstay and they break command and I go, no tap, no tap, no tap, no tap, no tap. <laughs> right. Yeah. Implying whatever this individual said. Yeah, right. Over, yeah. Even though I'm not using steady, continuous pressure in that moment. I am using a form of negative reinforcement, meaning I'm providing consistent corrections that will only turn off once you do the behavior. Yeah. So that would be no longer a punishment sequence. That would be negative reinforcement, Yeah. right? Okay. So then you get back to, she said, well, then if there's obvious confusement, confusion, mm-hmm. you should still be in the reinforcement stages. It's like, okay, well, you're using negative reinforcement then. Right. So you're in the reinforcement stages still, which would then say that you need to give the dog better help than in that moment, Mm -hmm. which kind of shifts back to the terminal marker of the no, which is I give the correction. I give the dog a minute to process that information and then I go help them back into command. Because what would Mm -hmm. we be doing if we if we were doing negative reinforcement, which what they're describing is negative reinforcement in that moment? I would be applying, you could, let's say I'm saying no tap, no tap, no tap, no tap, no tap, and I expect the dog to fix themselves, right? Mm. Meaning I want them to escape the pressure. Yeah. I would be using leash pressure to guide them back into position. Yeah. Right? I wouldn't be sitting there just no tap, no tap, no tap, no tap, <laughs> yeah. no tap. Because after like four or five no taps, it's like the dog doesn't even know, like they're just trying to figure out what do I need to do to shut the behavior off or shut mm-hmm. the pressure off. And if we're not providing any sort of information in the form of verbal help, then at that point, leash pressure help, allure, something like that, mm-hmm. how are they going to know how to turn it off then in that moment? Yeah, they don't. Right? Yeah. So we have to look at this from the lens of in a punishment sequence, we're marking, we're punishing, then we're terminating the behavior at that point, right? Mm-hmm. In the reinforcement stages, we would be providing consistent corrections that the dog needs to turn the pressure off. And in that stage, generally speaking, we would be wanting to give help as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the reason why I don't follow that principle is because exactly what we described. My no marker is a terminal marker. It marks the end of the sequence. From there, I can go put the dog back into command, right? Sure. I think sometimes we could fall into this trap of 
expecting a little too much out of the dog as far as like immediate compliance with things or fixing themselves or whatever. And that all just comes down to like, what's the picture that you're training, right? Let's, let's use another example, right? So like we train bed stays, obviously. Now in the context of the facility, like over the course of the program, if the dog's doing a board and train program, we don't get super crazy with like sending the dog from afar to the bed right? It's not a picture that we train. The reason for it is there's entirely too many beds in the room that we work it on where it would just cause confusion of like, holy shit, which one do (laughs) I want to go to? We're trying to create a little bit of a visual pattern of like the thing that I'm near is what I want you to get on, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so we train the picture of when I'm next to the bed, I give you the bed command, you have to get onto it. Mm. Right. So let's say I'm, you know, working the behavior from afar. Right. Mm. And I put the dog on the bed and I walk away from them and I go 40 feet away from them. And then the dog breaks command and I tell them no and give them a correction for it. Right. In that moment, if what they're saying is true, the dog would be expected to fix themselves. But we don't train the expectation of them fixing themselves from afar, meaning fixing themselves when I'm far away from the bed. Okay. Right. Yeah. So by using it as a terminal marker, I could mark, punish. There's no expectation of you fixing yourself in that moment. And then I could go back to whatever it is, the picture of giving the command, which is me being next to the bed, Mm. and give that cue and expect them to get onto the bed then at that point. And they're not doing anything wrong in between because I've marked and I've ended the sequence. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Or if the expectation was that they needed to fix themselves in that moment, it would be quote unquote wrong because I've never trained the picture of them going to the bed Mm-hmm. from when I'm well away from them. Okay. Right? Yeah. So that's kind of that's that's kind of my my idea behind it and that's why um that's why we train that in that way obviously. Um so yeah. you just have to have, you just have to be clear about what your expectations are with things. So because it's a terminal marker for us, that's the reason why we repeat that command after the fact. I think there's a lot of benefit to it. Like I said when you're giving a more firm correction for something, it gives the dog a minute to just just like okay. I got the correction. Yeah. Shake it off for a minute. Now, what is it that I need to do again? Oh, this. Great. Right. It gives you the opportunity to like hit the reset button mm-hmm. once you've still corrected for it at that point. Right? Yeah. Now, getting back to the lazy listening and like it creates an anti pattern and all that kind of stuff. Let's look at it this way. Right. Let's say what I'm saying is true. Mm-hmm. Right. And you could use it in that fashion as a terminal marker and reset the dog back into position. Right. Mm hmm. If my correction was well-timed, meaning the dog knew what it was for, meaning they got a correction for breaking command, they were like, oh, shit, I got this correction for breaking command, and the pressure was motivating enough where they want to um, avoid it or escape it moving forward, and I then reset them back into position and 60 seconds later put them in that downstay, why would they break the command again then at that point? Yeah, they wouldn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? So if I was, if that, if that, if I were running into a position where it's like, you know, people will look at it like you're creating lazy listening. Let me gather my thoughts for the rest of this. Hold on. If you're creating this expectation that that would create lazy listening, why would the dog perform something lazily if they're motivated by the consequence for what it is that we're specifically stopping? Yeah. Right? I don't know. And in that sequence, the correction is for breaking mm-hmm. command, yeah. right? 
So the dog will not break command again if my punishment was well-timed and I gave adequate information to get them into the position then after the fact. Now, yeah. let's say the expectation we were training was that the dog wasn't getting into command fast enough, right? Let's say I told the dog down. They didn't down. I told them no and gave a punishment for it. Then I gave them a down command again, you know, 30 seconds later and got them into position. The next time I go to do that repetition, why would the dog be slower with getting into the down? They wouldn't because no. they got a correction for yeah. being too slow getting into the down already. Exactly, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So this is where you get back to the micro details. <clears throat> Your emphasis, let's, let's use the example of breaking a down stay here, right? Mm -hmm. In that sequence of things, the punishment <laughs> is for breaking the down stay. The punishment yeah. is not for getting into the downstay. Mm -hmm. So if I fixed the breaking of the downstay, but the dog was being slow still with getting into the downstay, then I would start adding in corrections for not getting into the downstay fast enough, right? Yeah. And that's where you get to punishment is not for increasing behavior, it's for decreasing behavior. And what are you trying to decrease specifically in the moment of working that exercise? Is it the duration? <laughs> is it the distance? Or is it the speed of getting into the command in the first place because yeah. of likely distractions present? Yeah. I just—I <clears throat> don't see how it, it would create an anti-pattern. Like, why? Why? Well, I, I would need a little more clarification on like anti-pattern. Like, what, what does that actually mean specifically? Yeah. Let's see. I'm not sure. Let's see if there's an actual definition for that. Anti-pattern. What is the meaning of anti-pattern? The anti-pattern is a commonly used process, structure, or pattern of action that despite initially appearing to be an appropriate and effective response to a problem has more bad consequences than good one. Okay, so basically it's a pattern that in theory makes sense, but in practice has more consequences than benefits, mm -hmm. right? So my question would be, what are the consequences of doing it? We would have to look at then what are the consequences of doing it this yeah. way? The consequences, <clears throat> I'm assuming, are the lazy listening. But if you were to really look at this, well, first off, in practice, right, it, it doesn't, right? Like, it, yeah. it fixes the problem, right? Yeah, exactly. We've been doing it for a while, and, and there have been no issues. <laughs> <been> fine. <laughs> like, like, the dogs will do better because of it. Yeah, right? exactly. Um. Yeah, so I, I would I, again. I would ask follow-up questions to like, what are the what are the um, you know what are the bad consequences to doing it that way? Um, I don't think that there are any. Yeah, right. I don't think so either. So again, like you just got to get back to like anytime you get into like quadrants of learning or like using any of this type of stuff, like you know, like what what are you trying to increase or what are you trying to decrease? Then at that point, yeah, you know. Exactly. <clears throat> now, I could argue, let's say we were running into a lot of situations where, you know, post-punishment, giving the command, the dog, like, like, let's say getting into a downstay. Forget duration for a minute. Let's say I'm teaching a dog just to get into the downstay, yeah. right? I tell them down. They don't do it. I tell them no. I give a punishment. Give them a second. Then I give a down command again. And the dog still doesn't do it. Then I mm. follow through my punishment sequence. I need to do it four or five, six, seven, eight, nine times, right? Mm. Yes. At that point, then, if I'm giving adequate information, right, I'm following through with the sequence. I know my motivation is good enough. The dog still wasn't performing it up to par. And let's say that was happening regularly, not just like, oh, okay, cool. The dog's done it really well in like three environments. 
but you know, in this fourth really distracting environment, I'm needing to punish a couple extra times. Let's say it was happening just every, like in the training facility or, or yeah. places like that. Yes, at that point, I would argue what you're saying, which is like you probably should be focused more on reinforcing that position a little bit mm-hmm. in order to get the dog more quickly compliant with it and a little bit more quickly understanding what it is we want them to do, mm-hmm. right? So there is some truth to like, yeah, like, you know, if your punishment sequence is not working, right? And mm-hmm. you are getting confusion, right? And, you know, it's for something really, really simple like that. It's not for, like, you know, some sort of, like I said, big distraction or, or your level's yeah. too low or something like that. Yes, at that point, you might want to focus a little bit more on reinforcement. For sure. So. Cool. All right. Moving on. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's actually, I, I yeah. have one more follow-up sure. to that. Like, getting back to, like, lazy listening. This this is not what this person is asking, obviously, but a similar thing that I hear people ask very, very frequently, and I think one of these questions kind of gets into this a little bit, is okay. this idea that, you know, if I reward a dog post-correcting them for a behavior, that I'm going to train them to make the mistake to access the reward. That mm. is such a ridiculous state of mind, because let's look yeah. at this, Right. Let's say I've got treats, dog really likes the treats, and I'm working a downstate, and the dog makes the mistake, and I punish for that mistake. Mm-hmm. And again, the punishment was well-timed, and the punishment was motivating enough, right? Okay. Dog fixes themselves, then I tell them, good, and I reward them for getting in that position. A lot of people would look at that and be like, wow, you just rewarded the dog for doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> false. Here's yeah. why it's false. First off, there's a two-part sequence. I punished for non-compliance of, of, of the behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Punishment, by definition, decreases behavior. So it should decrease the dog not getting into position when I ask <clears throat> for the command, Yeah. right? Reward is to increase behavior. Now, where is that reward coming in the sequence? It's coming when the dog is in the correct position. Mm-hmm. So... In order for that mentality to be accurate, what I would have to do is I would have to flip-flop them, and I would have to say down. The dog doesn't do the down. I reward them for not doing the down. Yeah. Then I punish them for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I would have to totally flip it around in order yeah. for that to be accurate because what I've done by implementing both of those things at the same time is I've decreased not getting into the down when asked, and then I've increased getting into the down in the first place. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think sometimes we get a little too hung up on with the, the reinforcement, the things that you can and cannot reinforce, and you're not going to train a dog to want that punishment. Yeah. You're not going to if it's motivating enough. <laughs> Definitely not. Right? So that was my last thing to put to it is, cool. is I, I don't think that... I don't think it's as possible as you think in order to do that. Yeah. So that makes sense. All right. Our next one is from somebody you don't know. Three nine eight zero. Is that actually the the username? That is the username. Someone you don't know. Yeah. So someone we don't know says, "My dog has been possessive over me and my mom since before we got him." Knew him since he was born, but it's quite aggressive now. He's eight months and has developed some behavioral issues during his adolescence. He's fine on walks, and I can usually give attention to other dogs, but he snaps if other dogs ask for attention. He's friendly with other dogs otherwise, but this possessive behavior is a big problem as he does it to my friend's dogs. 
He'll go onto my lap, something he's not usually bothered about, and I feel him tense up as if to, if he's trying to hold on to me. I have taken him off my lap before, and he gets the, before he gets the chance, but sometimes he still snaps at other dogs. Is it? Read the first half of it one more time. Sure. My dog has been possessive over me and my mom since before we got him. We knew him since he was born, but it's quite aggressive now. He's eight months and has developed some behavioral issues during his adolescence. He's fine on walks, and I can usually give him attention. I can usually give attention to other dogs, but he snaps if the other dogs give or ask for mm-hmm. attention from him. I got you. Okay. <clears throat> so the the interesting part was he's done this since before it was their dogs. I'm assuming this was probably a friend's dog or something like that, that they used to be around all the time, maybe another family member's dog. Yeah. And uh, ultimately they wound up taking the dog from them. Right. Yeah. That's what I think is likely what's going on. Now here's what that tells me right off the rip. A lot of times when you are a guest, right. Meaning you for a while were just a random stranger, right. You were just a source of fun and affection to these dogs. Right. Mm -hmm. And when an owner doesn't have adequate control over a dog around those resources, you could see problems, right? Mm -hmm. And you could, you know, equate this to affection. You could equate this to food. You could equate this to toys, whatever it may be. If the owner of the dog doesn't have adequate control of the dog around a high-value resource, there is a possibility that when you start adding in other dogs into the equation or other people into the equation, that the dog will start getting possessive of those resources if they determine them to be a threat, right? Yeah. Now, in order for us to make sure our dog is not viewing our guests as resources that they need to guard in the first place, we do two things. One side of things is obviously the management side of things. Mm-hmm. One side of things is the training side of things. The management side of things is, all right, let's try to minimize the times that it's happening in the first place. Meaning, yeah. you know, I'm assuming these people, and this is where I would need to ask a lot of follow-up questions, obviously, but I'm assuming these people probably were, before they got this dog, around this dog constantly. The dog really, really liked them, and they were probably snuggling and petting that dog and just constantly, like, anytime they were around this person only being this source of fun, right? There was never a second where it's like, let's just let the dog do its own thing. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, you know, let them kind of exist and, and not be getting constant reinforcement from us and stuff like that. Yeah. There were no boundaries or anything to even out the equation, right? Mm-hmm. So so the first thing we would do, the management side of things, is like, okay, cool, other dogs are around. Let's just stop petting the dog for a little bit, right? That's one yeah. of our first things we recommend for people when they're having socialization issues or doing socialization in general is when you're introducing two new dogs, don't touch the dogs, right? Yeah. Let the dogs interact amongst them without this clouded haze of all of these freaking little, yeah. you know, fun resources and stuff like that for them to try to fight over then in that moment, Yeah, right? From the training side of things, you then get into the dog is likely when they see something as a resource, constantly trying to control that resource by doing things like jumping on them, clawing at them, mouthing mm-hmm. them, doing all of those types of things. Yeah. And if we allow them to do that and interact with that person like they would interact with something like a toy or a treat, it's going to further reassure them that this individual is a resource, Yeah. right? So as the owner of the dog, prior to you adopting this dog, we would punish for those things. We would tell the dog, you're not allowed to do that. This human is not a toy. This yeah. 
human is not a jungle gym for you to crawl all over and do whatever you want. Yeah. Right? Gotcha. That further then gets the dog out of the state of mind of this human is just this resource that I need to guard. Mm -hmm. And in actuality, what's happening is I, the owner, by doing that, am claiming that resource for myself. I'm saying that's not yours. It's actually mine. I have control over that, Mm -hmm. not you, which again gets the dog Mm -hmm. out of the state of mind of wanting to guard it in the first place. Right. Yeah. That's so then moving on to like, okay, this is your dog now, Mm -hmm. right? The dog, unfortunately has already prior to you getting the dog developed this association that you are just the ultimate resource, right? So the dog's around you even more now. There's probably still minimal training that's happening, minimal consequences that are happening for things. And the dog's around you way more frequently. It's just going to further nurture that state of mind. So Mm -hmm. what do we need to do? We need to right now flip that relationship upside down, Mm -hmm. right? Dog is no longer in your lap ever. Dog is mm-hmm. no longer ever allowed to jump on you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is it's not as simple as like they mentioned, well, we try to proactively take him off of our lap before it turns into a problem, but that's just management. That's saying, mm-hmm. well, I know when he's in our lap that he gets aggressive, so I'm just going to avoid that situation, right? Mm-hmm. We need to train him that, no, you're just not allowed to be on my lap in general. That's a bad spot. That's a vulnerable position for you to be in. And when you're in that position, you make really bad decisions. I'm going to mm-hmm. set a boundary there. So you start to see this even out a little bit where I'm not just providing all of the fun and the love and all of this kind of stuff. I'm providing consequences that you have to respect ultimately and yeah. not respect because I yeah. physically moved you off my lap. Respect because you understand I told you you're not allowed to be on my lap right now, mm-hmm. right? There's mm-hmm. a very big difference between physically moving a dog out of a position and getting a dog to move out of a position on their own, mm-hmm. right? Let's look at it. Like we could say, like let's say I have a dog that like lays in the middle of the doorway and won't move out of my way. And let's say this dog has a really bad habit of guarding space, which we'll see very regularly, Yeah, right? I could physically put a dog behind a gate so they can't get to that spot so I could walk through it when I need to to mm-hmm. avoid conflict, Or I could teach the dog that when I'm moving into, you need to get up and move out of the way and be respectful of my space on your own, not because you were physically dragged away, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's a big key that I think a lot of people miss. I mean, I I try to look at like, what what are the things that I do with my dogs in the house? And like, you know, and we're cleaning up dinner and we're in the kitchen or something like that. I don't, a lot of people get into this mindset of like, oh, I need to just like keep the dogs out of the kitchen because like they're underfoot and they don't move and I'm tripping over them and they're in the worst possible spot. And like, though there's some truth to that of like, sometimes we need to just get dogs like out of the way. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, a lot of that problem would be solved if the dogs just knew how to heed to your space. Right. And I don't use my commands to manage those types of things. I make sure that the dogs just get out of the way, right? If I need to (laughs) get into the dishwasher and Deli's laying right in front of it, which she loves to do, I'm going to walk up to her. I'm going to tell her, move and give her a little nudge nudge. with my foot. (laughs) And she understands that means get up and go somewhere else because she's being respectful to my space in that moment. And many, many people do not have that kind of control over their dog in the house where they try to get their dog to move and they need to like drag the dog across the floor, right? Mm -hmm. Or totally slide them like four feet away because the dog will just not get up and move. And that is absolutely a punishable thing if you're having issues with that in your dog. Mm -hmm. And if you could get that one thing under control, that's a massive one people don't don't realize, you know? Like if your dog really is just like a freaking rock on the ground that Mm -hmm. will not move for you, start practicing walking into their space 
telling them move or whatever cue you want to use for it. And if they yeah. don't get up and just go somewhere else, you would tell them no and give them a correction sure. for that. Now, got to catch my breath here. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of talking. Yeah. A lot of brain work here. Let's, let's tie this back to, to question number one, where mm-hmm. they were asking, like, well, would you train that with negative reinforcement first, or would you just use punishment to teach the expectation with it? You get back to, are you trying to increase something, or are you trying to decrease something? I don't give a shit where the dog goes, right? Yeah. There's nowhere in particular I could identify to remove pressure in order to get the dog to do more of something. Mm-hmm. I simply want to decrease the act of them staying firm on the ground when I'm pushing into them. Yeah. Right? So I would I would just use punishment for that. For sure. So. Cool. So that, uh, that would be my question. Start off with forget when dogs are over. Start getting your dog's just nonsense behavior in the house under control. Stop the jumping. Stop the mouth thing, right? Stop the in the lap. There's no reason why dogs need to be in your lap. This is like a, 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 a unpopular opinion to many dog owners, but there is absolutely no reason why your dog needs to be in your lap virtually ever. <laughs> yeah. Your dog can, if you want to let your dog on the furniture, that's fine. Your dog can lay next to you on the furniture. They don't mm. need to be on top of you, especially <laughs> if you have a dog that weighs over like 25 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I know he said that uh, when he gets on, when this dog gets on the lap, it's not something that the dog usually does, actually. Mm. So it's, it's Wait, only. What did he say? Read that sentence again. Uh, he says, he'll go onto my lap, and then in parentheses says, something he's not usually bothered about, which I think... It, something he's not usually bothered about. I think he's English, because he said mum. So yeah, I, yeah. I think it's like, he, he's not bothered about it, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, like, so I don't think... Well, we could interpret that as either, yeah, like he's not usually bothered while he's in my lap, or it's not something he generally will do. Let's Let's look at it both ways, right? Yeah. So let's say it's not something he generally does, mm-hmm. but he's learning that because you are the source of all safety and fun and, 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 and good, that he goes into your lap and you never see it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I would still triple down on correcting for that behavior, and here's yeah. why, right? Anytime you get dogs to start to see an individual as like the ultimate sense of safety like that, what winds up happening is they go there and then they don't feel like they can go anywhere else to create space. Right. Mm-hmm. So once he's in your lap, he is backed up against a wall. There is no moving any further, which yeah. some people look at like, well, why wouldn't I want my dog to see me as like the safe spot where they come into my space and then, you know, everything's fine. Well, because unless you have adequate control over everything around you and in a social context, you're generally not going to in that type of a situation. Yeah. What's going to wind up happening is the dog's going to get into your lap. You're not going to be able to then at that point say, okay, he needs protecting now. I need to keep everybody and everything away from me. Mm-hmm. Nor is that a healthy state of mind because we're trying to get them to interact with other dogs, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So by eliminating that as an option, what winds up happening is they need to learn and figure out new ways to kind of self-soothe. And let's say we're in this big open room Mm -hmm. and he generally will come into my lap and once he's in my lap, he's backed up against a wall. He'll start learning, oh, I move over towards dad. I can't get into his lap. Dog's still coming to my space. So maybe I'll go over to that side of the room or maybe I'll go over to that side of the room. It Mm -hmm. opens up the space more to them to be able to create space and and de-stress on their own without the need of, um, you know, an individual to kind of provide that protection then for them. Yeah. They'll naturally find the the path of least resistance. Yes. You know? Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Cool. All right. On to the next. All righty.
Let's see. All right. Oh, man. What do you got? <laughs> Is it a long one? No, it's uh, another Peyton. Peyton 857. Oh, this is that same person still? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, actually, we have another two from them. Really? Yeah. Oh, shit. Or should we go to Zasha? This is diff- There's one other one that's different. Let's go to that one first, okay. and then we'll go to the other one. All right. Uh, Z-S-A-H-E-21. I don't know how to say that. So uh, They're a regular listener, I believe. Yeah, you're a regular listener, so we appreciate you. Yes. I just don't know how to say uh, <laughs> your, your thing. So, question. <clears throat> when my dog lag, lags behind me during walks, sniffing, mm. I generally resort to calling her every 20 meters, which is not ideal. When I'm in a rush, I generally say, up, up, once. And when she does it again, I pair up, up with a low stem. First one at four, second time at eight, third time at 16. Most of the time, she's good at after the one at eight and she will stay close or what I would like her to do mostly stay in front and sniff around. So I don't have to check on her by turning my back all the time. This is not definitive though. And I find myself having to do it on a weekly basis. Mm. I feel bad nailing her with a high stem. I think I'm not being clear enough with her at the moment though. Mm. Thank you. Okay, so there's there's like three parts to this question. Part yeah. number one is inconsistent criteria. So you said sometimes you do it this way. Other times when you're in a rush, you do it this way. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That right off the rip is a big no-no. You've yeah. got to figure out what the expectation you're going to consistently hold the dog to is going to be. Because until you do that, punishing for non-compliance of it is going to be really, really unfair. Yeah. Because it's like, well, what is the expectation? Now, what you could do, and this is generally how we train people to do their walking, is you could have two ways in which, two different criteria for the dog on the walk, right? Actually, one criteria, one basically non-criteria, right? So uh, what we do is we train our come command, which is our walking command. That means you need to stay with me right now, right? This is not your time to lollygag and smell the roses and do whatever you want to do and stuff. This is the command for you to walk actively with me. So if I were in a rush, I would probably want my dog to be actively engaged in position with me, right? Okay. So if the dog is actively engaged in position with me, I would enforce my criteria in whatever the expectation is of that position, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say we want it to be not stopping to smell everything every four seconds. Like for me, come means stay with me in the bubble. If they Mm -hmm. stop to sniff and stop following me, that would be breaking command. I would correct for that in Mm -hmm. that moment, right? Okay. From there, let's say you got got time, you got an hour, you're going for a long walk, you got an hour and a half, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe what I'll do is I'll start off with a little bit of that come command, get the dog into a nice, good working state of mind. And then once I'm 10, 15 minutes in, I could release them. And at that point, there's no expectation of them. You're not engaged in command. So really, you could do anything you want to do within the realm of whatever leash it is that I have. Let's say I have a six-foot leash. You just got to stay within the realm of this six feet. Uh, and you can't like dig into it to go to pull anything or right? pull towards anything because that would be just like a no in general. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Right? Let's say I had a long 20 foot flexi lead and you could do whatever you want to do within the realm of that. Let's say I got a 10 foot long line, whatever you want in the realm of that. And you could have your dog do that as long as you want to. And at that point, you wouldn't really need any additional commands because the purpose of the walk is for the dog. Right? Mm-hmm. Do what you want to do. Right. You want to stop for 10 seconds to sniff this pole here. 
go right ahead and do that, right? You want to um, go ahead and, and sniff around and, and kind of walk into this little park area, go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. When we need to actively start walking again, like let's say you've been in this spot for four minutes and I want to walk into this park here, give the dog the come command, walk the dog into the park, then release him again mm-hmm. once it's time to give them freedom, right? Yeah. And by having that clear black and white expectation, you're making sure that you're avoiding all of those types of problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, that's thing number one. Um Thing number two is you get then back to question two of this entire episode, which was like the low versus high thing, right? Yeah, you get way too hung up on the level, yeah. right? Ask yourself, forget your two, then four, then six, then eight, then this and that. Yeah. Does your dog care enough about the pressure in order to escape or avoid it, right? Mm-hmm. The intention of using corrections is not to give the dog warnings. If we are going to correct for something or if we are going to use a physical aversive, whether it's negative reinforcement or positive punishment, the intent is to ensure the dog wants to either escape the pressure or avoid the pressure moving forward. Yeah. Right? Now, again, getting back to high and low is subjective to the human. If four or six is enough where the dog wants to escape or avoid that pressure, hell yeah, go for it. Right. But if not, if you're consistently needing to do this all the time, right, and you fixed the issue of your criteria is now clear again, mm-hmm. your level is too low and you need to make sure moving forward the first time you go to give a correction for it, it is motivating enough for them to want to escape or avoid that pressure. Yep. Right. Again, that doesn't mean it needs to be ridiculously high, but they have to want to escape or avoid it moving forward. But the clarity side of things is really the problem you need to fix first, right? Because clarity without motivation or motivation without clarity is useless. And what I mean by that is for criteria is inconsistent. Where we're providing the correction is inconsistent and not clear enough where the dog can learn to escape or avoid it. You could have your level set at a freaking hundred for everything and it's going to be useless. It's just Mm going to cause confusion, right? Yeah. And on the contrary, if you fixed your clarity issues and your motivation is not high enough, um, and the dog doesn't care enough about it to want to escape or avoid it, you're never going to get anywhere with it either. Yeah. Yeah, we have um, a, a thing with Bender. Um, <clears throat> he's a big pee licker. Mm. He loves the, you know, the, <laughs> you know, he gets that, that whole thing going on. <laughs> get, whole thing. Yeah, you know, I'm so, you know what I'm talking that about. that whole thing going that, on. That little chatter. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, you know, she was kind of doing where it was like, oh, well, Hit him. He didn't really care. So then the next one, oh, she went a little. Bit. I was like, this was last year. I was like, hey, let's just. He knows that he shouldn't be doing it. Just put it up there. Mm-hmm. Fixed it. Fixed it. Yeah, it wasn't just a warning. Like, hey, you shouldn't do that. It was like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. The the mentality of just learning to just like, if you're gonna correct, just correct. Yeah. Right. Make it count. Yep. That is that is such an important one. You know, because mm-hmm. like. We, we do to the human emotion of the high, the low, the, the feeling bad, the this, that, like we try to nice it too much, you know, yeah. we try to give all these warnings and this and that. And that's where you hit a point where the tool is just useless, right? The e-collar is fucking useless then to you because yeah. you never get past actually using it, right? Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about like the e-collar is a long-term tool. Obviously, you know, my dogs still wear it, you know, if I go out and about with them and stuff like that, but I don't need to actually use it that much. Yeah. Rarely. I rarely need to actually use it. Yeah. Right. And that's because I've it's done its job. Right. Like Literally, I've punished yeah. for the behaviors. The dog understand the correction if they perform X behavior is going to be there and it's going to be motivating and they learn to just avoid it, you know? Yeah. Which is why they will be compliant without the tool on. If I don't have the tool on them, they will still listen to me, right? Mm-hmm. I just 
don't put myself in that position a lot so that I don't ever run into a scenario where the dogs don't listen to me and I can't do anything about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. What you got next? All right. Uh, we have two left. Let's you burn through them. All right. He says burn through them. Do you want the big one or the short one? <sighs> Give me the short one. <laughs> like, I need a break. Okay. <clears throat> So the last two here are from Peyton again. So thank you, Peyton. For this all is your... the Peyton podcast. Yeah, this is Peyton's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, Peyton now asks, um, I've been doing a bit of research on the pet corrector oh, yeah, yeah. since coming across a few of your videos on it. I found one blog post, Unfavorable Odds, my review of the pet corrector, where the author claims that it has caused one of her dogs to redirect but it's full of people in the comments saying they've never had a problem with it. Mm -hmm. Given that you use it for reactive dogs, I figure if anybody would have experience, <laughs> if anyone would have experienced a redirect with the pet corrector, you would have by now. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had this happen? Thank you. Yeah, this is a really good question, right? Because mm -hmm. because it's a bigger it's bigger than just the pet corrector, right? Yeah. This kind of goes to the podcast episode we did a couple weeks ago where we talked about like quote unquote balanced dog training made my dog worse, right? Yeah. Redirecting dogs are very interesting because I'm a pretty firm believer that if a dog is going to redirect, regardless of what type of aversive you use, they're going to redirect. Right. And we get so hung up on like, well, I used an e-collar and the dog redirected. So like an e-collar is a bad tool for this dog. Right. Where I look at that as a bigger issue of if the dog is going to redirect when I provide any sort of aversive, that is an inappropriate response for a dog to have to that. I look, let's yeah. look at it from like a dog on dog socialization standpoint. I use this example a lot where people talk about like mounting, like mounting is bad. Dogs mm -hmm. shouldn't hump other dogs. No. And when, when you ask and I actually don't believe that, right? Um, but when people say that, they say, my dog shouldn't mount other dogs. I asked them, I was like, why? Right? And they say, well, one time my dog mounted another dog at the dog park, and that dog turned around and attacked my dog, and my dog had to be in the fucking emergency vet for three days or some shit, right? <sighs> yeah. so, so my response to that is always, okay, well, was the mounting of the dog an inappropriate response or was the other dog mauling your dog over mounting them an inappropriate response? Yeah. Right? <laughs> because you could play that exact scenario out with 20 dogs and what's going to happen is probably 70% of those dogs are not going to give a shit that the other dog is mounting them. Like, you know, 15 to 20% of them will maybe give the dog an appropriate correction for mounting them because that's what dogs really should do. And then yeah. maybe 5% of them will actually attack your dog over it. And mm -hmm. the ones that will attack your dog over it is completely, completely, completely a them problem, not oh, yeah. the dog mounting them problem. Yeah. It's no different than like, you know, some people will say, well, dog shouldn't have face-to-face, -face and I'm going to tie this back, obviously, to the use of aversives, but dog shouldn't have face-to-face -face interactions. They shouldn't ever sniff each other face-to-face -face because, you know, one time a dog sniffed this other dog face-to-face -face and that dog attacked it over it. It's like, okay, well, it, <laughs> was that a sniffing face-to-face -face problem or was that a the dog attacked your dog for literally sniffing them problem? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we make all these adjustments to like what our dog should or shouldn't do because of their inappropriate responses to it, right? So getting back to use of aversives, right? Let's say I correct the dog with an e-collar. The dog turns around and fucking nails me in the arm over it, right? Yeah. That is a that 
dog problem. It is not an e-collar problem. I need to address that redirecting problem, right? Yeah. Whether in the form of using a muzzle to block its ability to do it, right? Whether, you know, making sure my t- my timing of my correction is a little bit more appropriate where I'm not waiting till the dog is so fucking overstimulated where they're going to feel the need to redirect, right? Mm-hmm. And with that same dog, I've seen this situation play out a million times where, you know, you correct them with anything and they'll fucking redirect. I told the story yeah. in that podcast episode about this dog that I just grabbed the leash from the owner and pulled it away from the owner before we even started training. The dog turned around and redirected on me, right? <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, yeah. is that a matter of like, oh, well, the flat collar <laughs> really caused this dog to redirect, yeah. right? Is it a that problem <clears throat> or is it this dog has an issue with being told what to do, Yeah. right? Now, let's go to the pet corrector here, right? Getting to like trying to see both sides of the spectrum here. Obviously, when dogs are really, really overstimulated, there is always, always a possibility of them taking that frustration and turning it on whatever's near them. Right? Yeah. Redirected aggression is a real thing. Right? Yeah. When you're using something like a pet corrector, obviously it's going to be a little bit more intimate of a correction where you're getting closer to the dog with it. You're spraying that burst of air, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there it is something you need to be mindful of, of if you have a dog that is prone to redirecting in general. Right. Which many dogs are that maybe when I go to implement this aversive, I need to make sure I have some sort of safety protocol in place to ensure that if the dog redirects that I could address that problem. But just because the dog redirected when I used the pet corrector does not mean that that tool is automatically a bad tool to use with them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the way that I look at that is if your dog's going to redirect, they're going to redirect regardless. Yeah. And whatever type of aversive you use, you're going to run the risk of them redirecting. So I just need to ask myself with the pet corrector, not did the dog redirect or not. But again, was the dog motivated enough by it? Was it aversive? Was it to them a high enough aversive in order for them to want to avoid it then moving forward or not? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I look at that. Yeah. Now, also, keep in mind the pet corrector, right? Tools like the pet corrector are, are you know, you have your aversives that are, are working off of, like, what we'll call, like, pain and discomfort, right? And then you have aversives that are more, like, psychological aversives, like things that scare the dog, right? Yeah. The aversive, like a pet corrector, will fall into the category of being more startling to the dog and kind of scaring them more than anything, um, so sometimes what you'll see is with those types of tools, you'll see a little bit more of an intensity to like, holy shit, what was that? Mm-hmm. And a little bit more probability for something like a redirection because mm-hmm. it's getting all of their attention shifted towards the thing that is, um, that's scaring them. And that thing obviously is right in your hand, right? So you just need mm-hmm. to make sure that when you're using any type of aversive, right? But anything where you're going to be close to the dog, you just have to be mindful of that. You got to know the dog you're working with. And like I said, if you have any sort of like concerns that there is going to be redirection or anything, depending on the size of the dog, just obviously make sure you got leash pressure so that the dog can't like lunge towards <clears throat> you. Or yeah. you got to make sure that you're using some sort of muzzle. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Last one. Also from Peyton. <clears throat> you ready? I'm ready. All right. Peyton says, big fan of this channel. 
This comment is unrelated to this particular episode, but I figured an extra comment can't hurt the algorithm. No, it can't. We appreciate that. Uh, I don't know of many trainers that are quite as big on coercion and positive punishment as you, but are but they are still so aggressively scientifically principled in their approach. I have had some very cool breakthroughs with a more intense positive punishment to suppress, followed by counter conditioning. Um, and the question goes as follows: On several of your videos, now I've come. <clears throat> on several of your videos now I've come across you talking about avoiding reinforcing states of mind uh, muzzle conditioning upstate canine brandy uh, pet corrector Tyler Mudo talks about not being able to reward the state of mind the example he gives is receiving $50 every time the light is turned off for somebody scared of the dark but you can validate them by demonstrating a matching state of mind Owners, when they treat near, near when they treat near a scary stimulus, act weak, thus hurting their dog's confidence. In both the muzzle training and wait, read that last sentence one more time. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, <laughs> there's a lot of like yeah, uh, yeah, 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 parentheses. Yeah. Um, so it starts at Tyler Mudo talks about not being able to reward the state of mind. The example he gives is receiving fifty dollars mm-hmm. every time the light is turned off for somebody scared of the dark. But you can validate them by demonstrating a matching state of mind. Owners, when they treat near a scary stimulus, act weak, mm-hmm. thus hurting their dog's confidence. Yes. In both the muzzle training and brandy video, it doesn't seem like it would have been a weakness validation to reward given your general confidence. You seem to differ with Tyler here, or maybe this is a terminology difference. I feel like I'm missing a piece here that can make a huge difference in my approach to counter conditioning. Could you share your take on this? This is this is a good one, right? Yeah. Sorry, it was a very no, 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 no. This is this is a really good one because this is one of those places that I would say, like, as dog trainers, we say things sometimes because trying to get into the weeds of over explaining it to somebody can mm-hmm. be more confusing than just creating a blanket rule right yeah. so so i would say that to that point yes there are absolutely times that i tell owners to stop petting their dog because you don't want to reinforce the insecure i think i've said specifically in it i think i've said many times in the past and i think i've probably toned back on saying this a little bit because there there is a little bit of like contradiction to it mm-hmm. um I think I've said specifically, you know, re- keep in mind reinforcement doesn't just reinforce physical things the dog is doing, but emotional states of mind. I think is exactly how I've worded it in the past, right? Mm-hmm. And um, yes, to answer the question, like let's say like th- this goes back to uh, all these questions kind of tie together a little bit, right? So when I was talking about like I punish a dog for not downing and then I give them a treat after for it and how some people will look at like, oh, like you're rewarding the dog for not downing. You're going to create lazy listening or, or any of those types of things, which is, mm-hmm. which is not really accurate, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so, so let's look at why do we say it? 99% of the time when we're working with dogs that are really fearful or a little shut down or a little nervous of stuff, the owners want to reinforce the dog doing the correct thing, but they have no way to reinforce it other than like petting them and stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, it, it, you know, it's it's not like most of those dogs like won't take food in that moment, right? They're mm-hmm. not going to take rewards or things like that. They're just going to want to pet them. Now, yeah. getting back to just like we've talked with aversives a couple times about it's contingent on is the dog motivated by the aversive or not in that moment. Reinforcement is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. We sometimes get stuck in our head on what things should be reinforcing or should not be reinforcing to dogs or what is a high resource versus what is a low resource or a high reinforcement versus a low reinforcement, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm. And most owners think that their dog is much, much, much more reinforced by them petting them than the dog actually is. Mm. I would argue that in many cases that we pet our dogs, what winds up happening is the dog actually doesn't want the pet in that moment because they're stressed out, they're nervous, and it's like, God, like people's hand, they're touching me and this and that. And what could happen is due to our, like, I think she mentioned, like, our kind of, like, mirroring the dog's fear, you know, state of mind or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. petting the dogs in that moment or doing that could actually be perceived as more aversive to the dog in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. And it does kill the confidence that they can kind of sense through the way that we're petting them, like frantic petting, nervous petting, things like that, that we're equally nervous and we don't have control of the situation, which gets the dog completely out of a state of mind we want them to be in, which is looking to us for guidance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think in many, many cases, in addition to that, when we're in these situations where owners want to pet the dogs, want to praise the dogs, want to provide some sort of reinforcement for the dogs, most owners also are not adequately skilled in how to give rewards or give punishment or give guidance or whatever it may be. We're adding more things to the equation like petting and talking to them and and all those types of things um, can actually confuse the owners more on the things that are actually going to get the results, which generally speaking are going to be punishing for the non-compliance of the thing. I think they're going to get more value out of putting their mind and their attention into enforcing whatever it is they're asking of the dog Mm. than they are going to be trying to split their mind of knowing where I reinforce for things versus yeah. where I punish for things. Yeah, yeah. Later on, once we have the dog fairly fluent with those types of things, what we'll do is we'll then coach the owner through the process of like, oh, okay, cool. This is how we now create a more positive association with this, right? Yeah. This is how we now reinforce the expectation that we want, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and she hit the nail on the head when she said, you know, she found value out of providing a more clear, more firm punishment for behavior and then followed it up with the counter conditioning with things. That's the way we want it to do. We want it, let's stop this problem first, then let's focus on the reinforcement side of things. Mm-hmm. And in both of those videos that she described, I think it was the muzzle conditioning one with Betty, with Bitey Betty. Yeah. And then I think it was the um, the Brandy Pet Corrector yep. video, if yep. I'm not mistaken, yeah, those which was from our seminar that we did in Florida. Yeah. In both of those situations, we didn't have enough time to work on all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. In the Betty counter conditioning video, that was like an assessment I did as a favor for oh, a okay. friend of mine. Uh, you filmed that one. Yeah. Yeah, remember yeah. little Bitey Betty? Yeah, I remember hey. Bitey Betty. So that was like an assessment we did as a favor where we just tried, well, like we just needed to get that muzzle on the dog, right? And because of how like frantic and aggressive that she was in that yeah. moment, uh, obviously uh, providing too much reinforcement and stuff, getting your hand in close proximity, getting back to like the pet corrector, like running into chances of redirection yeah. and stuff like that. We just needed to focus on getting that muzzle on the dog, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then, like I said, the Brandy one, it was in a seminar, right? We didn't have all of this time to then focus on the back end side of things. Yeah, we were kind of just trying done. to demonstrate very specific techniques into stuff. And yeah. I do that a lot, actually. Forget the the telling them, like, reinforcing states of mind or, or any of that kind of stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we do that a lot with uh, when we're training certain things. Like when Bradley was in town, I wanted to show him how to more effectively use an e-collar as negative reinforcement and positive punishment to teach things. So we had a, a dog in Gus, and I showed him how to train all of the commands exclusively using negative reinforcement and positive punishment, mm. even though the dog was very, very food motivated, mm -hmm. not because using food in that moment would have been wrong or bad, yeah. but learning the individual technique by itself and understanding how it works independently from those other systems will allow you to then more effectively put it into the entire equation when mm. you need to, right? Okay. So so we teach something with negative reinforcement, right? And we understand, forget the food. I could use this reinforcement to its absolute fullest right now. Mm -hmm. Then once I've mastered that, if I add the positive reinforcement side into things, I'm going to then be able to double leverage both of those as good as possible. But I'm going to know that I'm confident in this one independently and confident in this one independently. So mm -hmm. if I run into a problem, I'll know which one is failing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, yeah, so, so getting back to the reinforcing state's mind, Tyler is absolutely correct. Like, mm -hmm. you, you know, if you're using a reinforcement, this is the caveat with it. If you are using a reinforcement that is actually reinforcing to the dog, yeah. right? Not a bullshit one, like petting the dog in the moment if the dog is not highly motivated by it. Mm -hmm. Not like trying to offer a dog a treat in a situation where they absolutely don't fucking want that treat. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? If the reinforcement is actually reinforcing then yes you cannot reinforce that state of mind if anything adding the reinforcement in in those moments will help to put the dog into a better state of mind i still like to get owners to focus on one side of things at a time though mm -hmm. i think the biggest reason why we've had so much success with clients over the years is because we're able to break things down and take certain pieces out of the puzzle that sure mm -hmm. they might help or they might be good but we take them out to get people to focus on just one thing at a time and eliminate some of the bullshit right mm -hmm. um, that's getting in the way and that is not really going to provide you know 80 20 rule like that's not going to provide like 80 percent of the results that we want yeah and um, then little by little as we move through the program we'll have them add things back in and yes there are definitely times that us as trainers have sayings or things that will tell them just to make it easier for them to just like not worry about that mm -hmm. so i think that's my, that's my answer to that question yeah no i like that was there another part i didn't answer no, that's what I, I was I was kind of reading in, but no, you you hit everything on the head. She was just talking about mostly about the the terminology differences and yeah. why you didn't, you know, because sure. we didn't have time on those. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, like a part of it is just kind of like strategic dog trainer. Let's like not get super fucking crazy with some of this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, you yeah. kind of weigh like when I'm working with different clients, I really try to weigh out like you know how like what is the dog most motivated by you know and for some dogs that are highly highly food motivated yes early in that process when we're you know you, you know working on corrections and stuff like that i will have them leverage those because i know the dog is highly motivated by them and it's going to help right yep. uh, other dogs they might be moderately food motivated or minimally food motivated mm -hmm. and i generally am not even going to waste my time early in the program trying to get the owner to master all of those skills of effectively using reinforcement because i yeah. know that their primary reinforcement is going to be the negative reinforcement from the e-collar that's really what's going to get them to listen not trying to like half-ass like treats that they're like eh, take it or leave it, you know <laughs> yeah 
Like, there's plenty of dogs you'll meet that they'll eat the treat that you put in front of them. But, like, you got to ask yourself that question of, like, how much were they actually motivated <laughs> by it? Yep. You know? Yep. So so that's kind of the way that we look at things. But, yeah, for your case, like, when you're working with your dogs, talking to the, the person that asked the question, obviously, mm. um, if your dog is highly food motivated, you absolutely can leverage that while you're doing all of those other things, you know, to help counter condition, um, you know, states of mind, obviously. So. Yeah. I just cool. always prefer when I'm doing counter conditioning, I always try to make sure whatever the main problem I'm trying to stop is mm -hmm. that I have effectively stopped that thing mm -hmm. from there add as much positive reinforcement and counter conditioning as you can to then start to shift the association. Right. Yeah. So cool. Cool. Well, there yeah. we go. There's six questions for you guys. Kind of a long episode. Hour 15. Yeah. Yeah. Just makes me think we need to get Joe on here, man. Get Joe. Yeah. Is his name Joe from Sarasota? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just talked to him yesterday. Yeah. He's at the fucking uh, the dog trainers uh, seminar with Michael Ellis. The dog trainers podcast oh, yeah. seminar. Yeah. yeah. He's at that right now. That son of a gun. Tell him. Son of a gun. He doesn't have, he has no choice. He has, he's got to get on. He's he could give us a on. review. I always forget that we haven't had him on because I did that live with him one time. Like when COVID started, I was doing like lives with trainers. Yeah. And that was like the, the inception of the podcast, I feel like. Yeah, um, he, yeah, we need to get him on a, on a legit podcast episode. Yeah, we'll have to do it. I want to get him down here yeah. so we could have him on live. Yeah, exactly. You, know? you hear that, Osudes? Osudes. You're coming on the podcast. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that's what we got for you. Keep asking yeah. the questions. Those yeah. were some good ones. Those are ones yeah. that, you know, some of these, I, I love questions like that because, like, I got to sit back and I'm, like, talking through it in real time, yeah. you know? So hopefully those answers made sense because, like, there were some no, of them do. that I'm, like, like I said, I was, like, talking through them in real time, <laughs> like, to myself. Um, but, um, yeah, if there's any clarification you want on any of those points, obviously ask as well, and I'll make sure that I... Uh, do that. This is uh, this is a pot. This one's for this one's for the trainers. I feel like. Yeah. yeah oh no? yeah. This yeah. one, like owners are going to be listening. They'll be like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" This one. This one had that dog trainer math. This one had the dog trainer math. <laughs> so. Cool. All right, guys. All right. Until next time, we'll see you then. See you.